welcome to Holy Conversations, a podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We're so glad that you've joined us for another episode today. I'm Stephanie Greenwald, a pastor in Oklahoma City here in studio with my co-host, Reverend Bob Kaler in Colorado. How are you today, Bob? I'm doing well, Stephanie. It is the Lenten season. What are you doing for Lent? You know, I'm actually really excited about something new that we're trying in Oklahoma City for Lent. We have a podcast with our church at St. Andrew's Community Church here in Oklahoma City, and we are actually going to try a video interactive podcast. We've been doing an audio podcast for several years now. We're going to try to interact with some of our listeners live, and so I'm excited about that during the Lent season. What about you? Well, I'm doing a series. I, I got inspired by our conversation with Ken Collins about Jesus the Stranger and all of the people who responded to Jesus. So I'm preaching through a lot of, of not using the book exactly, but using a lot of the, the themes and looking at different people and the way they would respond to Jesus. And the, the, the idea being the question, if Jesus walked among us today, would we recognize him? And how do our expectations get in the way? So I'm starting, started on Ash Wednesday with, uh, with talking about Satan and how does Satan <laughs> approach Jesus in the wilderness and things like that. So it's, it's well, an interesting, started off with a bang. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> might as well start with the biggest, the That's biggest right. opposer uh, to that, but it's a fascinating. Uh, and I really do appreciate his work around that because it's been really helpful and sort of framing for me how to think about the Lenten season, but we're continuing our podcast uh, adventure through uh Looking at this book, The Next Methodism, which we talked about with Ryan Danker, who was one of the editors, and there was one chapter in there that really grabbed my attention. All of them are excellent, but one that grabbed my attention specifically, and that was a chapter on the significance of marriage, and it's written by uh, Professor Warren Smith, who is Professor of Historical Theology at Duke Divinity School and an elder in the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church, and Warren is joining us today. Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, we wanted to have you on this podcast because I think this is one of the most helpful and concise arguments I've seen for upholding a traditional view of marriage. And it, it really does strike me as a, as a wonderful expression of what traditional Methodists are for rather than what's, what we're against when it comes to marriage and sexuality. So, and I wrote you right after I read this, because I read the book over a weekend, as I said to Ryan, and I wrote you right after I said, I got to have you on the podcast because I, I was just struck by this because I've seen so many different arguments about marriage and they're all great, but this one is, is the most useful. And I think for our listeners, one that they can really grab onto. So what prompted you to write this essay for the next Methodism? The, the short answer and true answer is that Ryan, who used to be, was a, who was a former student of mine, asked me if I would be willing to, to do the piece but it goes, in fact, back to earlier conversations I've had. Uh, my area of, of specialization is the early church. And one of the things that just struck me when I thought about uh, early Christian discussions about uh, sexuality and contemporary discussions is the contemporary discussions don't place place sexuality as if it's a subject all unto itself, whereas the early church placed it within what we call a theological anthropology, meaning 
how does our understanding of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, inform our understanding of what it means to be human? In other words, what is the nature and destiny of human beings? And therefore, rather than talking about sex by itself, we need to take sex and marriage and place it within that larger discussion of what sort of people did God create and what sort of people is God recreating through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit? You know, so many good points you make in the essay. You begin the essay by saying that Methodists must recognize that there is an essential difference between a Christian and a non-Christian marriage. So how do you differentiate those understandings of marriage? I think the Christian understanding of marriage is distinguished not in the sense that it's necessarily radically different, because certainly you can find, certainly within Judaism and Islam, you would have similar views of Christian marriage, similar views of marriage to what you see in Christianity. But I think the distinctive thing is precisely that we look at Christian marriage in the context of the Christ event, in the context of the work that Christ is doing, because Christ is, as Paul puts it uh, in Romans 5, he is the second Adam. And therefore, in the incarnation, you have not simply God revealing God's self, but you have God revealing what God intended human beings to be from the beginning. And therefore, in Christ, Christ becomes the lens through which we look at all aspects of our lives. And so when we're thinking about marriage, we are thinking about what does marriage signify for the Christian? How does it reflect uh, the saving work of Christ? And so, you know, it's, I mean, as many weddings as I've done, we use the language uh, that it, um, uh, it indicates uh, the, the relationship between Christ and his church. We are the bride of Christ, whom Christ claimed you know, through the incarnation, death, and resurrection. And so I think that becomes very much the primary, the starting point of our reflection about human nature and about marriage within uh, the nature and destiny of human beings. And that connects baptismally because our right. we find our identity in our baptism into Christ and into the church. And so there's there's an identity that goes with that. It's not just covenantal. It's it's identity forming. And so identity seems to be one of the major issues at stake. I mean, we had Tim Tennant on the podcast and his talking about his book for the body. Uh, we've talked to David Hall of the British Methodist Church, who pointed me to Carl Truman's work around you know how identity is being formed in Western culture. And it seems to me this is one of the the major breakpoints that we see across the board in our culture when we're talking about Christian identity and our understanding of personhood versus what culture understands personhood to be. And and now we're looking at this through your essay, through a specifically a Wesleyan lens, you know, even, even sort of drilling down further. So how does our Wesleyan understanding of baptism and the idea that we're created in the image of God inform the way we should view marriage and sexuality. How do those things kind of come together? Where, where does that identity formation come in and how should it govern how we think about marriage and sex? I'll start by answer, answering that with a peculiar statement. Namely, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote out my, my own funeral 
And the place that my funeral liturgy begins is at the baptismal font, because it's at the baptismal font that I both first died and was raised, because in baptism, we confess that we are united to Christ in his death, and we are raised with Christ sacramentally so that we participate through the gift of the Holy Spirit in the new life, the new creation that is inaugurated by Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. Um, And therefore, when you ask the question, who are you as a Christian, the place that you begin is you begin with baptism, because by being united to Christ, you are a part of Christ's body, given life by the Spirit, And it's also claiming then that Christ is the head of the body. And therefore, my life as a Christian, along with my brothers and sisters, is to grow up into our head so that uh, as Christ extends grace down to us, we become more and more remade in Christ's likeness. And I think that's a critical move, especially for us Methodists right now, because while Wesley certainly believed that we were created in the beginning in the image of God. I think one thing that's been lost is a strong Wesleyan doctrine of sin, namely the way in which sin corrupts the image in which we were made. To put it another way, if we fail to love God rightly, but instead love the creature rather than the creator, our mind is going to be focused many other places. And so our mind, which is intended to be a mirror that reflects the God who is the object of our worship, our contemplation, our study, that mind, that mirror is now shifted away from God to the things of the world. And therefore now we take on the image, not of our creator, but of the world in all of its distorted form. Um, And so now we are being reformed in Christ's image by having our minds turned from the things of the world to the one who is our savior, to the one who is the image of the invisible God, as Paul puts it in Colossians. There's a sense, too, I think, that in this identity formation we see in our culture that I am my own. I, I create my own reality. I create my own understanding, uh, my own, even my own uh, identity apart from my body. And yet, as you've said, I, there is a there's an identity formation. There's a claim made on us. I, Paul says, First Corinthians, uh, you are not your own. Uh, I'm, I'm reading Alan Noble's book, You Are Not Your Own, uh, which is based on that really powerful stuff. And when that's the case, that's a radically different way of thinking about personhood. And baptism is, is in effect saying, I am not my own. Right, right. Uh, exactly. I mean, I, if you take the idea of sin as pride, pride in the classical sense doesn't mean sort of you have, a, you have an inflated sense of yourself or a big ego, but it means you aspire to, to autonomy. Instead of being a servant of God, you make yourself your own Lord and master, and and therefore you create your own identity, as opposed to 
in baptism, we realize that we have been claimed by God who created us and who now would redeem us from sin. And that means, as we say in the, the New Year's Eve covenant service, I am no longer mine, but thine. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's an act of complete submission, knowing, though, that when we submit ourselves to God and allow him to do with us what we please, we will find greater happiness in being his servants than we will if we are trying to make our own happiness. Mm-hmm. Well, and this idea of submitting to God as well and allowing him to move us onto perfection really is one of the DNA of our faith as Methodists. And so as we talk about sanctification, you make a great connection to marriage and sanctification because you make the case that marriage is, and I'm quoting you on this, a means to our sanctification and that marriage is a type of spiritual friendship in which we encourage and challenge each other in the way of holiness. And one of the things I love about this, because uh, it reminds me of something very personal when my husband and I were going through premarital counseling, we were actually with my father, who is the pastor that married us. And one of the things that he told us that I will never forget is he said, part of your role as a spouse is to help your spouse become the person that God created them to be. And so I love that, but it's so different from the romantic view that our culture says should be normal. So can you share with our listeners, what role does marriage play in sanctification and how is this kind of spiritual friendship different from others? Good, good. I, 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 first, I think your, your father's advice to you was spot on. Uh, he wise man indeed. Um, it seems to me part of the Christian life is discovering, as Paul talks about in Galatians, the liberty we find in dying to self so that Christ may live in us. And it seems to me that part of what marriage does is teach us how to die to self. In other words, if, you know, when I was a bachelor, you know, except for needing to care for my dog and, uh, you know, attend to my business, you know, I didn't need to worry. I could do things on my own schedule and largely my life revolved around what I was interested in at the moment. You can't do that in a marriage. Not only does there have to be communication, but sometimes you have to be willing to say, you know, what my spouse needs is more important than what I want to do at this moment. And so there's a way of subordinating my will to the good of another. And I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's what, um, it's what Paul talks about in Ephesians, you know, when he says, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then, I mean, he's clearly has a reciprocal notion of that. Um, uh, that if we live in submission to one another in love, then we discover that our flourishing is linked to the flourishing of those we love. So therefore, it's not altruism, but it's realizing that my fulfillment of my life or my life finds its greatest fulfillment when I enable other people to flourish. And that's specifically the person you live with and sleep with day in and day out. And especially, you know, when you live and are in communion day in and day out and the, and, and the bloom is off the rose, uh, that's when, 
you know, sometimes, you know, the, 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 um, the romance is gone, perhaps. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. But there are times you don't feel romantic, even, even in, a, in a very healthy relationship. And sometimes you just do it because you love this person. And I think in that way, we are, you know, made holy in love. Um, I mean, the way I express it uh, is my goal as my as husband is to mediate God's love to my wife so that she may flourish and be the person God called her to be as mother, as teacher, as, you know, the many other aspects of her personality that they that um, that in encouraging her to do those things, I think um, that hopefully I um I am able to reassure her that she is a beloved child of God. And and personally, that's important because I had the pleasure of baptizing my wife. And my wife really came to accept Christ during our relationship. And so, you know, in some ways, uh, the baptism was far more important than the wedding. The wedding is simply, you know, helping her and me live into that baptism. You make another point about this form of spiritual friendship that differentiates differentiates it from others. And you said marriage is a form of spiritual friendship, but what distinguishes it from other spiritual friendships is that husband and wife are joined together with the purpose of bearing and raising children. Talk about that for a minute and why that's the unique part of this idea of marriage, because we could construe all kinds of relationships as these kinds of spiritual friendships. What makes this different? This, I think one of the things that makes this different is that coming together as husband and wife, we are either intentionally or perhaps unintentionally participating in Christ in God's creative work. I mean, it's it's knowing that when you come together as husband and wife in the marriage bed, you may very well be creating or or um, conceiving a child, conceiving a life. And that, to me, is a very, very holy move, and one that should not be taken for should not be taken for granted. And when you know, and therefore, you realize that as you're you're coming together as potentially hus- not just husband and wife, but father and mother. And so the question then becomes: How are we in this act of procreation? going to take on the responsibility of raising a child uh, to know and love God and become the people that God intended them to be. And so it seems to me that the procreative element is a central component of what's going on in marriage. Now, not every marriage you know, results in procreation. Not everybody has children, um, and for a variety of reasons. But I think it's essential that that be on the table as one of the chief purposes of marriage and, you know, pity the couple that doesn't take that seriously. I I think this, this, this is really a key part of this because it does have to do with uh, a a purpose for marriage. It has, it has a goal. It's not simply the fulfillment of the, of the two people who are in it, which is so much of the, of the view of the culture. It's how, how is this person fulfilling me? Uh, or how it's the Jerry Maguire thing, right? So, so you, you, you complete me. Uh, well, 
tr- true enough. I mean, we're still we're still individuals created in the image of God, but there's a sense in Genesis too that they're created together for this purpose to be fruitful and multiply. That that that's part of the image of God. But there's also a limited context for it, and I think one of the real strengths of of this essay is how you also tie marriage to resurrection. Jesus does the same thing. So often people in this whole debate we've been having around sexuality and marriage and so forth have been talking about what Jesus didn't say. We rarely talk about what he actually did say about marriage. And uh, it seems to me that when he speaks about marriage, he's tying it back to God's creational intent. But also looking ahead to the resurrection. So walk our folks briefly through Jesus' teaching and how it should inform our understanding and discussions around sex and marriage. This, to me, is a really key part of this. I think there are two things that I would lift up. The first is when the disciples posed the question to him about divorce. And the first thing to be said is that when Jesus answers, he says, you know, Moses gave you the law concerning divorce as an accommodation for sin, Um, but says that's not what God originally intended. And when he's describing it, he is saying he's speaking of marriage in terms of the union of a man and a woman. Now, I think that's critical because Jesus was was one who was um, more than willing to push against social boundaries and make radical claims. Uh, A classic example is when he speaks of, he says, some are are made, uh, some people are born eunuchs, and some people are made eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Now, for Jews, to be a eunuch was anathema. It was contrary to the law. So the fact that he's using and speaking of eunuch in a positive way is... You know, I mean, that would just be verboten. It would have been shocking to his original hearers. Yet when Jesus, and, and that just illustrates that Jesus is willing to push back against social norms. But when he's talking about marriage, he's talking about a marriage between a man and a woman. He's not extending it uh, to a uh, heterosexual union, or to a homosexual union. And he is understanding it in terms of this is what God's original purpose was. So I think that becomes the first critical thing, that we are fulfilling God's original intent in uh, when we gather, when we are united in marriage. The second thing is there is a, a scene in Luke's gospel, it's during Holy Week, and he's confronted in the temple by the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And they say, they pose to him the question, you know, suppose um, a man is married to a woman and he dies. Uh, Moses says that, you know, she should marry her brothers, her her husband's uh, brothers. And, you know, he marries, uh, so she marries brother number two. He dies. She marries brother number three, et cetera, et cetera. And then they pose him the question, well, Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument to show the absurdity of the belief in the resurrection. And Jesus basically says, oh, this is a foolish question. You miss the point. Because in the resurrection, we will not marry or be given in marriage, but we will be like the angels. Um, and his point is, why will we be like the angels? 
but we won't need marriage precisely because there will be no death, and therefore there will be no need for um, procreation. Instead, we will live as people like the angels whose primary purpose is the worship of God, and therefore there won't be marital relations, there won't be sexual relations. Now, obviously, he doesn't expand on that, but it makes the point, number one, Jesus is thinking of marriage uh, and uh, as connected with procreation. And once the need for procreation uh, is removed, so too marriage as we think of it passes away. The sexual component doesn't need to be there. Um, And I think then it also says that the good of sex is limited to the needs of this world, but it's not a part of our ultimate experience with God. And therefore, you know, our primary, our ultimate goal is the beata is to worship the God as we behold him in a pure form, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, when we will see no longer in a glass dimly, but now face to face. That's the goal. Um, and you know, marriage is a way of preparing us for that. So that's part of the way, I, you know, and once again, it seems to me that uh, the reason the resurrection is important is because resurrection is our goal. That is, that's what we expect. That's what we claim in baptism when we are raised with Christ. Therefore, we understand our lives in the present as in some way preparation for the resurrection that will come. So in effect, when we look at this, th- this is the part that I find really helpful, that a culture that really, in effect, overvalues sex as the center of our being, very Freudian kind of concept, you, you're saying, and I, I want to quote this from the book because I thought I underlined this like four times because I thought it was outstanding. If then sex has no place in the final perfect state of human existence, clearly sexuality is neither essential to our nature nor necessary for happiness. Since it will not be essential for our eternal happiness, it is not essential for our happiness in the present life. Sexual intercourse between husband and wife serves an important purpose in this present age, but it will pass away and men and women will live together in the community of saints as brothers and sisters in Christ. So resurrection puts all of this in perspective that it's part of our human life, but it's not the ground of our human life. Exactly. I think the resurrection becomes the lens by which we look at what constitutes human happiness. I think one of the big problems of society today, and heaven knows, and I, our young people particularly, but you know, folks of all ages, it seems, are bombarded with presentations of people uh, with the message that being sexually active is necessary for human flourishing, for human happiness. And I think, number one, that that's an insult to the people we know who are single and living a celibate life, as if somehow those of us who are married and um, have sexual relations with our spouses um, somehow are happier than those folks who aren't. I mean, I think that's, that's a basic point. 
Um, but I think it's even more, it's Jesus calling us to look at the goods of this world in their context, but saying, look, no, there is a higher source of happiness, and that is the life of service to God. And part of that service is obedience, that our the we flourish when we obey. I mean, that's that's the whole point of Adam and Eve's fall, or the whole significance of that story is the misery we bring on ourselves when we presume to act and be our own judges of what is holy and what is right, rather than doing, uh, seeing holiness as contingent upon obedience to God. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'd like to go back too to what you mentioned about uh, singleness and celibacy, because in the book, you argue that Methodists need to affirm the goodness of singleness as well as the goodness of marriage. So how can we better affirm singleness and celibacy in the next Methodism? Yeah, I mean, at a very practical level, and I, I say this as someone who was single when a pastor, you know, if we can get away from the language that says, oh, there's somebody out there for you. Or, you know, sort of, you know, wondering, well, sort of what's wrong with them that they're not married yet? Mm-hmm. And instead realize that God calls some people to a life of singleness. I, I remember talking to, to Ted Campbell, who was a professor at Duke, now at SMU. And we were talking about Wesley. And he said, if I had been John Wesley's spiritual advisor, I would have counseled him to be single. I mean, this <laughs> is a man who had, you know, for all of Wesley's strengths, he had terrible marriage, and he would have been better to have stayed single. Um, that's not a curse that God puts on somebody. It's that God's calling them to something else. I mean, the one line that I love is um, from a Catholic priest was, you know, God calls some people to be single, to be alone, so that nobody has to be. You know, and it's just that sense of, um, when you're single, you're a lot more flexible in terms of your schedule. You can be there for other people. Whereas right now I have to, you know, in a sense, balance my time between what I give to my students, what I give to other people and the time I need to give to my spouse and children. Yeah. Paul's basic advice is only get married if you have to, right? That's, yeah, right. Kind, of, <laughs> that's kind of what it comes down to. So different from what we, what we tend to think about. And yeah. Now, I, there are a lot of questions that we still need to wrestle with with this, and you and you make that admission in the essay because it's a short essay. And we don't address everything, um, but there are issues like divorce and remarriage, and I, I think you're absolutely right when you say that we can't have different standards in our understanding of human sexuality. We can't simply do what's happened in a lot of. Uh, our Methodist debates, we've we've centered around one particular thing. We've got to look at this comprehensively. We can't have different standards for heterosexuals than we do for gays and lesbians. We need to be consistent. So how would you like to see the next Methodism address these issues? This would be, I think, a novel approach. But I think a pastor coming into a church, making it known that if I'm going to perform a wedding, I don't expect, or I expect that the couple is not living together. Um, If you are, then sort of cease and desist. And, um, you know, and then you can resume cohabitation after your marriage. 
Now, I think that would be a very I think that would be a bold statement to make. Um, but I think that would be a pastoral starting point uh, for saying, look, we we take seriously um, holding, uh, you know, to the, to the standard of celibacy outside of marriage. I mean, one point where I have sympathy, I can understand why there are uh, people who identify as being gay or lesbian as being angry with the double standard in the church. And it seems to me we can't speak to them and call them to a standard that we ourselves are not willing to live by. We heterosexuals are not willing to live by. Um, that's just, yeah, I mean, that's, that's hypocrisy. And therefore, it's to create a stumbling stone uh, for uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I would encourage every one of our listeners to pick up a copy of this book and and really to enjoy this essay from from Warren. What a great, great interview today. We're so glad that you came and were with us on this episode. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, and friends, you can pick up the book, The Next Methodism from Seedbed. You can go online, check it out. We also want to encourage you to be a part of the global gathering of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. On May 7th, you can find out all the details at wesleyancovenant.org. But Warren, thank you so much for being here today. It was great to be a part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. Do you have any last words for us before we wrap? Blessings to all of us during Lent, whether we're giving up or uh, taking on some new form, works of um, mercy as well as works of uh, self-control. Um, may we all learn to die so that we may truly celebrate Easter more richly. Amen. Amen. Well, again, we thank you, Warren. We thank you, Stephanie. And uh, we thank our listeners for joining us. As always, you can email the show at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at WCA pod. Find out all the information about the global gathering and all the other stuff that's coming up on our website for the Wesleyan Covenant Association, wesleyancovenant.org. We will see you back here again next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Thank you for joining us.